0: Welcome to the Freshman Foundation podcast, helping you make the jump from high school athletics to the collegiate level and beyond with your
1: host, Michael Huber. Hey everyone, it's Mike Huber, founder and CEO of the Freshman Foundation and Certified Mental Performance Consultant. If you're listening to this episode, then you're likely a student athlete or family member of one. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Hopefully you find our podcast valuable. Mental performance coaching allows young athletes to show up at their best every single day by conquering distractions, pressures, and mental roadblocks through evidence-based strategies. So let's talk. You can visit my website at michaelv@vincenthuber.com to schedule a free strategy session. Let's see if mental performance coaching is a fit for your family. Enjoy this episode and thank you again for listening. How is Lawrence Halstead passing on lessons of self compassion to young athletes? In my work with young athletes, one of the most consistent themes is perfectionism. Perfectionism is a spectrum, and each individual moves along that continuum. I find that young athletes have a very low tolerance for mistakes. The word should is very common in a young athlete's vocabulary. My guest in this episode, Lawrence Halstead, is a two-time Olympian in fencing. Like my clients, Lawrence struggled to cope with poor athletic performance. He harped on the results rather than experiencing joy in competing. It wasn't until Lawrence suffered a major injury just months prior to the 2012 Olympics that his perspective changed. In episode 37, Lawrence discusses how his work with a sports psychologist helped him focus on a values-based approach to competing. Through his work, he learned self-compassion for himself, which elevated his performance to levels that he never experienced before. Now, through his work with the True Athlete Project, Lawrence is using his experiences to help develop young athletes in a more adaptive manner. I'm excited for this conversation. Let's build your foundation with Lawrence Holstead. Hi, Lawrence. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. It's great to see you again. Um, I guess I'll start by asking, you know, in your book, Becoming a True Athlete, there's a quote in there that says, sport has not come close to delivering on its potential for making the world a better place. So tell tell me why you think that and what that means to you.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. But basically, everyone is aware of just how kind of the the lofty ideals of sport, just kind of the values it can give and what it can be for individuals and for society. But really what we're seeing at all levels of sport from grassroots youth sport all the way up to the Olympic elite professional level is just ways in which it's not living up to those ideals, those values. So the kind of experience of kids doing sport at school where they're kind of ostracized or... Like kept out or feeling less than uh, the the kind of especially in the states this professionalism like elite version of youth sports like under nine travel teams um, kind of making them into mini mini adults when they should just be having fun like up through these kind of talent pathways that just get these young kids to focus only on their sport when they know they're not going to be professional athletes the vast majority and then they drop out with nothing left kind of alongside it, all the way up to elite pro levels where people are treated like machines and then just kind of spat out the other end. And like Olympics, that's an area where I've been quite concerned about where these kind of massive mega events that take over cities, build infrastructure that are just left kind of white elephants afterwards, huge corruption. There's always a flow of money from from public into private hands around these games. So there's just... Yeah, in the book, I kind of I point to quite a few of those examples, but that's that's what I mean. That just at all levels of sport, we're we're not doing enough. We've we've lost touch with the, with sports true value in the world.
1: Yeah, and, and I I think the word the word if I had to pick one word out of that response is money, right? But I, I don't necessarily want to go down that road here um, because it's a a much much more involved conversation that maybe is a little bit off topic. But I think money is the reason why youth sport around the world, particularly in America here, at least I'll say in America because I'm here uh, and you're not, um, is just a huge business. And, you know, there's a lot of good people doing good work like myself, like my business is a business. And, but I think a lot of it is intention. And there are a lot of people who are just trying to make money without the best interests of young people at heart. And I think that that's that's the challenge. And so that leads me to my next question, which is to say in your own athletic experience as a fencer, can you talk about the role of coaching? The impact of coaching Because I think that that's also a tremendous piece of that puzzle that the quality of coaching is substandard at least here in America because of the system we have, but like what was the role of coaching in your own development?
0: Well, I was incredibly lucky I started at the age of seven in a Saturday afternoon kids class with a coach there who just happened to be the best coach in the country, and he was a, a, a Polish guy who had been in the in the UK for quite some time. Uh, and I followed I followed him all the way through my career up until my first Olympic Games, and he was he still remains the best in the country. He is a real kind of Mister Miyagi character, so just incredibly kind of warm and fun and easygoing but technically the best one of the best in the world and just knew how to get the most out of young kids seven-year-olds and olympic olympic athletes in their in their mid-20s so i was i was incredibly lucky in that
1: respect so when you were introduced to him at that early stage would you say that that was like what role did that play in your interest in fencing
0: it was it was huge i mean this was yeah like i say the best coach in the country but he made it just all about fun for me as a 7 year old growing up it was not about the things you would imagine the top coach in the country to be about just winning he was all about just the enjoyment of it and the kind of the mastery actually even as a as a kid it was about really mastering these skills and he was very technical so you he'd want you to do things right which could get a little bit of a drag when i just did I just wanted to get on and fight and kind of things but but really a, just an overriding sense of like he just wanted me to enjoy it he really this is it he wanted everybody he taught to feel that love for fencing that he had and it was it was really it was catching it was contagious for him uh so everybody knows how much he loved it and that's what he wanted so that as a guiding philosophy is pretty great
1: for a coach yeah and and I think that that personality component that emotional awareness, the communication piece is usually what's missing, right? Like most of the coaches that we come across in our lives tend to be technically proficient, right? And a lot of times the technical proficiency is what allows them to grow and develop in their career. But what gets missed a lot of times is the ability to teach somebody, instruct them to communicate how to do things that are developmentally appropriate, but also giving them those really good feelings about like, I enjoy doing this. So if I enjoy it and I'm getting better at it, I'm going to keep going. So like in the book, you talk about self-determination theory, which is a big influence over my practice. It was something I was really interested in when I was studying sports psychology. It just made perfect sense for me, right? So those who are listening, self-determination theory uh, posits that if three um, basic conditions are met, for young athletes which is autonomy which is the sense of control competence the sense that I'm good at or getting better at and relatedness the sense that I have people around me that I can trust and that I like to be with if those th- three things are happening the athlete's going to want to keep going right and I th- I I smiled when I saw it because it is so near and dear to me so can you talk about talk about that like you mentioned in the book so clearly you're a student of it as well like what does it mean to you
0: yeah, and I think, I mean, as you do as a young athlete, you don't know what's you don't know that's what's happening at the time. But when I look back, there were absolutely those were the threads that run through my entire career. And luckily, I had this this coach who who allowed a lot of autonomy all the way through. Um, perhaps too much at sometimes, <laughs> and it's a it's a spectrum. It's like the, you can give too much, and you sometimes athletes also want just a bit of structure to be given to them. But I I had it to to wonderful levels. So just knowing that those three things—that's the recipe for the highest motivation in individuals—and I had uh, I had those things in spades. So that was a big part of why I stayed so long. And could have had many kind of off ramps that I that I almost took, kind of taking breaks in my career. We can talk about later. But yeah. always kept coming back, and I'm still here. Not at a high level, but I still want to
1: be involved. Right. Exactly. And so and I wanna I wanna get on to to your story and talk about how you progressed through your development and the sort of milestones and markers in your career and some of the things that happened because I think it's really it's very fascinating, but it's also very instructive for people who are listening. But in the book as well, you sort of cite the statistics about dropout in sport, youth sport. And that's also something that's, I mean, it's, it's very uh, upsetting for me. And it's part of the reason why I do what I do, that 70% of young people in America um, at the age of 13 are already are out of sport altogether in any capacity and don't intend to come back. Right. And so that's, that's shocking. Right. And, and why is that happening? because we talk about the professionalization of sport, right? At 13, people start, and I see this all the time because I coach kids that age because I have a son that ages. They already have this language about themselves, like either I'm good relative to everybody else, or I'm not good, I'm not on this travel team, or I'm not doing this. And they just say, well, what's the point if I'm not good? And that's that's just that's dangerous in so many ways because a there's still many years of development physically, emotionally, mentally that can contribute to a big spike in in your capacity or or the ability to perform that you haven't even experienced yet. But at the same time, it's even if you don't see that the lack of activity, right? The lack of involvement in competition and the lessons that sport teach us, and the physical, you know, uh, fitness component of it it leads to adults who are not active and are not competitive and are not participating in sport. And there's a long-term lifetime effect of that. So it's really, it's really frightening. And so much of it to me ties back to the system, like you referenced. Um, So for you, like at seven, you start at seven, like at what point did you know, or you start to figure out like, Hey, I'm pretty good at this.
0: You know, it took some time. I, I don't, I think I was uh, there or thereabouts when I was kind of 13, 12, 13, 14, but never one of the best ones, never one of the ones really winning the competitions, just kind of in a group of guys, of young, young guys kind of doing a bit better. But then it was first around actually 16, 17 was when I really kind of, I got my first few results that stuck out that kind of, that made me think, oh, actually I've, I've made some gains above everybody else in my kind of age group, so it it took a long time, and that was, yeah, you need to you need that motivation. You need to have other things in the going for you in that in those time to keep you going. I mean,
1: yeah, how glad I am I didn't drop out at thirteen. <laughs> right, there's but but right, the, the, you which your comment just illustrates. I think helps to illustrate my point, which is to say, like a lot changed between 13 and 16 or 17 for you and that was a ramp up if you stop at 13 right who knows (laughs) and you stop i mean clearly you don't get to where you went which is two olympics right so there's a lot that can happen and i think a lot of people just get discouraged when they're not seeing that result or they feel like maybe they don't belong and that's i think a lot of times we're, we're we're led to believe that by other people and they tell us we're not good enough and we take it to heart and we, and we just sort of fold up the tent and go home.
0: And how about how crazy is this system, even if we accept that it just focuses on the results and on the performance of these kids, that it's creating an environment where so many of them leave before they even know which, that they're going to be the best or not? Like, we're missing out on all those Olympians and professional athletes who just didn't think it was for them at 13 because they weren't on the, the travel team by then. Like, how crazy is that?
1: It's crazy. And, and, you know, I, I'll speak from my perspective. I know you're a parent, but your, your, your child is, your children are much younger than mine. Uh, yeah. The, younger than mine. Mine are, mine's a almost 14 years old. And so I talk about him a lot because he's a really, uh, he's a really good case study. He's a, he's a tremendous little athlete. He's undersized. He's the youngest kid in his school grade because we made a choice to keep him on an academic track. And so he's, you know, in some cases a year plus younger than some of the people who are in his cohort. And so he hasn't grown yet, but he's extremely knowledgeable. He's smart. He understands how to do things well. He just physically is behind. And so in that age group, when you're physically just smaller in stature and aren't as strong and aren't as fast, like there's a huge gap because some of the young, some of the people that he competes against are have gone through puberty and he hasn't. And so it it would be really easy to focus on that. And he does at times, like, like I don't fit here, you know, like I'm getting beat up, you know, not literally, but like I'm kind of getting left in the dust sometimes because I'm so on the smaller side. And I tell him like, you got to keep, if you love this, you got to keep going because, one day you're going to you're gonna develop physically and then, then you can decide, right? Once you hit puberty and develop physically, then you could decide whether or not you belong or not. Because right now you just have a, a deficiency that has nothing. It's not in your control. So just if you love the game you're playing and he plays a lot of them, but if you love it, then just keep working at it. And, you know, I try to illustrate that through examples. And as a parent, it's hard sometimes because you get emotional, which is hard because even if you're... Like if even if you sit where I sit, which is I'm I'm in the youth sports space, I believe all these things. I have I think I have a really healthy worldview on how it should go. As a parent, even when you know those things, sometimes it's hard not to get emotional or take things personally or not get frustrated because it's your child. And I think I can relate to parents in that respect because, you know, a lot of people, you know, feel like their children aren't getting a fair shake sometimes. And that's that is real sometimes. It's not just hey, my kids, you know, um, you know, I'm making this up in my head. It's true. But at the same time, we can't make it about other people. I tell them, you've got to just do what's best for you.
0: Yeah, that's why it's a system problem, not on individuals or individual groups.
1: Yeah, it's a system problem. What, and what's happening here in the US is that when the system fails us, we then go out and we just, we, we buy into the system even more in the sense that we pay for more services if we can. Right. So then it's create this gap between the haves and have nots. Right. So if I need, if my kid's small, I send them to a trainer. If my, you know, my, my kid is struggling with his confidence, I send them to Mike. If my kid is, um, you know, skills aren't developed they go send to personal instruction. And it's great that you can do those things. It's an investment in your child, but at the same time, it's like, you know, then what, then it becomes about money and professionalization and a return on investment. And it's not about fun anymore. You're putting kids to work at 14 to go meet with their trainer when they should be out in the schoolyard running around.
0: Yeah. I think half the reason I stayed in it when I wasn't getting many results was I just got to hang out with my friends and go to some cool places without my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: So uh, tell me, okay, so that's a good segue. You opened the door. So your parents were both Olympians in fencing, correct? That's right. So talk to me about the relationship you had with them, as a fencer, as somebody who was doing the thing that they were elite at and probably loved as much as you did? like What was your relationship with them in that space?
0: Well, it was very different with both of them. I I felt a lot of support. I didn't feel all that much pressure from them for the most part, except in competition with my mom, she was fine. She was too nervous watching me. She would never be anywhere near. She'd be in a different room. She couldn't couldn't watch that was perfectly good for me my dad he wanted to be right there and on the piste we call it by the side of the piste with me and he just couldn't control his kind of facial expressions his emotion when he saw me winning or losing especially when I was losing or losing touches and he couldn't control it and I hated it so a pretty early stage I think I was 13 or 14 about then I banned him from coming to competitions with me so he, he was just, that was it. He couldn't come anymore. Or well, if he did come because he had to drive me, then he was in a different room. He wasn't allowed to watch. And that was, yeah, I I don't remember it being that much of a kind of issue. It was just a decision I made. Like, you can't, I don't enjoy you being here. It doesn't help me. You can't come. So it was obviously tough for him. Like, he knew too much to, to be there. And so he he suffered a bit from that.
1: That's that. That's really interesting, and I and I I think you know the fact that he respected that. It sounds like is a pretty incredible thing, right? Because it's hard not to want to help. Um, and and I I I'm very good at personally not doing that as much, except in egregious situations where I feel like, particularly the coaching is not very good, and I I do get upset. Uh, and I have to sort of tone myself down because I feel like the kids are being done a disservice. But in in your dad's case, it sounds like he got it because that's a lot of pressure, right? And and one of the things that I see in my practice working with young people one-on-one is the um, across the board, the presence of perfectionism and in some form or fashion at some level. it's you know It's garden variety in most cases, but it's there. Um, in some cases, it's really, really um pronounced and it's it's a source of you know uh anxiety or stress. Um, but the reason why i I think that that is is kind of what you were describing, which is to say like, you're my parent, and I just want unconditional support and when when as parents, we make faces or we react negatively to our performance or we say something that is critical in those moments it's taken as you don't love me unconditionally, right? It's taken as you're more concerned about me being a performer than just me being happy. And it hits hard. It's it, it cuts deep for a lot of kids. And I don't think parents realize that they're doing it. And if they do it and they realize it for me, like as a parent, like my thing is like, if I do something that I, that I regret, I will apologize for it. Like, I shouldn't have done that. You know, I shouldn't have done that. I I reacted emotionally. I can't take it back, but understand that, you know, that's my fault. And um, I think that that's something that's missing because the pressure comes from that. Like, oh, I want to perform for my parents. I want to show them that I can do this, or I want to show them that all the money and time that they're investing in me is being returned to them in the form of them being rewarded with a smile on their face because I won, you know? And there's a lot of living vicariously through children, you know, whether you are an athlete or not, parents, like it's a reflection of a parent. And so they want to, they want to see their kid win so they could say, Hey, my kid won. Whereas they're not going to go tell their friends like, Hey, Johnny had a great time. Like, it's not as cool as telling your friends that he won a medal or a trophy. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so you banned your father and now like as you're moving up to the ranks, like, so who, you know, rel- who are you relying on then for that? Was it that coach you, um, your support, the coach you had referenced early on, was he with you at that point yeah. in your teenage He was years? still there. Yeah.
0: I was at the uh, senior club with him and my, also at the same time, another, another kid joined that Saturday afternoon class. And we, it was basically the three of us that followed. We, were, he was in the two Olympic teams with me as well. So we, he was my closest rival and my best friend for that entire time and we just pushed each other with the help of this great, brilliant coach we kind of pushed each other onwards and onwards all the way through the ranks really i mean there were there were others we had squad men like team members and and lots of others but they were the support they were the people that kind of that made the biggest impact on me it was early on it was around 15 when we started travelling internationally um, neither of my parents would come with it was just the coach and us us fences and that was
1: that was brilliant yeah i'm sure it was because you get that sense of autonomy that you're that you want and you're and you're able to have you know be yourself and not feel like you're performing on a stage um but as i was reading in the book like it sounds like there was a certain point where maybe your your focus your emphasis um, your way of thinking became very results-oriented to the point where it was having a negative impact on your ability to generate the results that you wanted.
0: I mean, all the way through, really. I mean, I, I enjoyed the process, but in competition, there was a real kind of paradox. I loved competing uh, for a long time. That was why, why I was doing it, the feeling of competing. But I also suffered terribly when I lost. It was so wrapped up in, in doing well. Even though I wasn't winning competitions much at all in those younger years, I would just really suffer from every time I lost. So I was really, yeah, I was wrapped up in in getting results, and it was all about the results. Actually, it wasn't all about it. I was still doing it for these other reasons. It was fun. I was with my friends, uh, but for sure, the results weighed so heavily on me that I would, I'd be kind of devastated after every loss. That was that was my mindset right up until my mid twenties.
1: So what what caused the sh- a shift in your perspective?
0: That's a that's a longer story really. It it uh it started in in 2012 with with an injury. So this this is really where it kind of came to head and it wasn't that I took on my mindset particularly because I noticed that there was something wrong with it. It came out of necessity that I the Olympic year came by. I had been working for six years professionally for these Olympics in, in London, in my hometown. And the first training session of the year in 2012, I, I tripped over and broke my wrist on my sword arm, uh, broke a little bone in my wrist, and had two surgeries and four months out of technical training. And just had a really dark experience, a dark time with kind of Seeing my teammates all training, preparing for the Olympics, potentially taking my spot that, that had been mine for six years um and i had to I had to figure out how to kind of get out of this funk to get out of this place because i I still had a shot I, our Olympic selection was in June I was going to be coming back from back from these surgeries to training around May, so I didn't have long, but i had a had a shot, and I started working with a psychologist then who was hadn't come across her before but she was connected to me by our team manager and she the work we did together was the was really it sowed so many of the seeds for that kind of shift of mindset shift of approach we basically but it was it wasn't about performance at the start it was about how do i live my live day by day in this really challenging time in a way that i can be proud of myself because I knew I didn't want to be, I was resentful, I was bitter to my teammates, I was being, I was not a nice person to be around in those days. But that's not how I wanted to be. So she helped me kind of, we worked on my values and what I value about being in this kind of world as an athlete and then helped me kind of just, yeah, live a bit closer to those values day by day. And that, that was just the start, that was the start point. And then there's a natural kind of, progression from there which is actually if you're living by your values and you're competing by your values there's no it doesn't make sense to be hard on yourself or to be upset if it doesn't go your way because that's sport it's sometimes you win sometimes you lose actually if you give it everything you've got and you you really have stuck to your true to your values true to your game plan as much as you can then that's why you don't need to suffer that's why you don't need to feel the pain if you lose and that kind of came as a natural progression to that work and it was just revolutionary for me my entire approach my mindset had, had shifted 180 degrees almost
1: yeah well that's great and and i mean you mentioned in the book you know i'll I'll use her name Katie Warner Um, I don't know Katie. She's in my field. I think that that's amazing to hear, right? Anytime someone tells me that they worked with somebody in the sports psychology field and not only worked with them, but had what, what I would consider to be as good a result as we could have gotten, right? Which is this normalization or shift to bringing perspective back to competing and to sport. That ironically enough, a lot of times allows us to perform at our best because there's an understanding of what's really important and we can be ourselves. And when we're ourselves naturally and we feel good about ourselves, we're going to perform the way we want to. So having somebody to walk you through that is really important. How long were you out from the injury? Like out of, you know, out of competition altogether. And how long did you work with her during that span?
0: Yeah, well I was out injured for 4 months. Came back in May. Ended up getting selected for for the Olympics but not as the in this kind of full capacity. I was selected as a reserve for the team event, not in the individual event. There are two events in fencing. So not my entire kind of dream about being there, but I got I got to go and I did get to compete. And I was working with her for for that so I I guess about eight months in total all the way up through to the Olympics in, in August. So it wasn't a huge long length of time, but it was intense. We would meet every week and, uh, talk on the phone a bit as well because I was still struggling in, in between times. So it was quite an intense period. Um, but yeah, I mean not just transformative to my performance, my experience of sport then, but to my life as well. I, that work I did then is kind of have ripples effects all the way through into this book, into my kind of how I work now. So it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty amazing how the impact it can have.
1: Yeah. And, and that was 10 years ago now. And you still are very clear on the value that she provided to you in that process, but also as part of your life. And I think as a, as a somebody who works with young people, I think that's the greatest reward for me is to be able to work with somebody and have them tell you that you helped them and have them sort of just remember you for being someone who cared about them. And I think that the fact 10 years later, you're still able to sing her praises because of what she did to help you in your life. And it's, that's why I do what I do. I'm sure that's why she does what she does. Um, I'm curious when you got started, like when you got hurt, did they just say to you immediately, like, you're hurt, you need to talk to somebody? Or was there something where they it took a little bit of time and they noticed that you just weren't in a good headspace? And then after kind of seeing you down or depressed maybe, then they referred you. Like Was it like a matter of fact, like as soon as you were injured right after, they said you need to start working with this person? No,
0: it was a bit more the second, second bit you said. Just took a bit of time, realized that I, I wasn't dealing with it very well. It was pretty obvious to everyone around I was not a nice guy at that time. So and I'm very grateful to to our manager for for making that link because she I've spoken I've since spoken in this in between time to a to a whole bunch of other athletes in different sports who've had very similar experiences with Katie and she's a special person for for how she works um and really what she did for me is just inspire me with what is possible through working with your mind which was kind of amazing to say I was in my mid-20s, already kind of verging on the Olympics before I even realized just how much power there is in working with your kind of mentality and, and with your, your psychology. Um, and that's what she did. She opened my eyes to it and and showed me just how much there is to gain. Yeah.
1: I'll tie it back to self-determination theory and, and the motivation and the work that I do, which is to say, um, if somebody... If so if I'm connected to somebody who's not truly ready to do the work, it's probably not gonna be a success, right? A lot of times it needs to be the athlete who comes forward and says, I need help and I'm ready to invest in this. Cause like you said, it can be an intense process, right? If you're meeting every week, which, you know, I will do with athletes, right? We're we're working on stuff. She I'm sure she probably gave you things to work on, right? She probably gave you homework and she forced you to think about things you probably didn't want to think about because it was gonna make you mad or make you sad or make you you know whatever and it was going to take up time but that work doing that work putting in the extra effort and really trying to understand how to apply it is such a big part of sports psychology and when the when the when the client or the subject is not like doesn't believe they need the help it's really hard to to make the kind of impact you want to make as a pro- professional because there's not buying, right? But if the motivation's there and somebody wants to be better, not just a better performer, but a better person and really take control of their life, then you're going to get somebody who's really invested in it, which it sounds like you are, which is really cool to hear. Um, and coming out the other side of it, you know, having read the book, it seemed like once you sort of, maybe when you got through that first Olympics and you performed, you started to really like embrace that different, perspective on sport after that 2012 Olympics. Is that a fair understanding of the way things went down?
0: Well, yeah, but there's a there's some extra important bits, of, bits to that story because that year was so stressful. I actually ended up taking a, a year off after the, the 2012 Games, went traveling for an entire year, ended up meeting my now wife in Denmark and moved in with her. So I never went back to the UK or never moved back to the UK that year became 2 years so i actually took 2 years off from competition was doing a bit of training at the time but now i was kind of i was doing work i was i worked as a kayak guide around the canals here in in denmark like completely different lifestyle and then saw my team was still doing well got this kind of fire coming back into my belly and i thought i'll i'll give this another shot for rio i think we could do something special so then i set myself up i had 2 years till the Olympics. And I could really kind of approach this from, I was going to be doing my training in Denmark, not with the national squad in the UK. I was basically going to be running my entire program myself and yeah, this autonomy piece again. Um, but I was, I was doing it on my own terms and with this new approach of I'm going to do this. Cause I, for the joy of the joy of kind of, yeah, seeing how good I can be. And I wasn't going to accept any of that same suffering and pain just for losing a competition or losing a fight it was going to be i was going to i was going to do it for my values and and enjoy every bit of it so there's that it all kind of combined and those two years were definitely two of the best i've ever kind of competed my performance just i think it skyrocketed and it was far, far more enjoyable but i was just freer i felt free of that anxiety free of that the fear of losing the fear of not being good enough it just wasn't there anymore I could just, I was free to focus on my game plan, how I wanted to compete. And it, yeah, it just, it
1: it made all the difference. So what are those values? Like what are some of the words you would use to describe those values? Like when you ultimately got to the point where you really understood what was important to you, like what are some of the words that you would use to describe those values today?
0: Yeah, so I've done the exercise twice now I did it with her as an athlete I've done it again a couple of years ago in my kind of professional life so words like integrity and learning mindset uh, I remember variety was one of my values back then kind of experiencing the variety of what life has to offer so it was things like that I think definitely the kind of team element of it we are individuals we're a team but I was always a team I love team sports as well so i loved love that kind of Relational aspect of being an athlete, so that was those were some of the values that I, I drew on.
1: Yeah, I've been through that exercise myself in my life in a couple of different capacities as well, and I, I probably did it the first time, you know, eight or nine years ago, and I still lean on it today. You know, in terms of like what's the most important thing to me, and I, I mean, for me at the time, it was I just wanted peace in my life. Like I just wanted to be at peace with myself and I wanted to be at peace. That was like a goal for me all the time. Like, and, and it actually comes out of my work because when I talk to athletes, what they tell them, I tell them sometimes is if we make things simpler and we take things out, sometimes that's more effective than trying more things and putting more things in. And I think it's confusing at first. Sometimes it's like, well, because everybody thinks they need to do more and work harder. And and I said, sometimes it's just a matter of looking at your life, prioritizing and, and simplifying and taking out those things that aren't serving you well. And that's because we get so caught up. There's so much to get caught it, caught up in. And I do that now. Like when things aren't going well for me and I don't feel good about myself, I'm like, what can I subtract from the equation? Because it's just causing me stress that I don't need. And it's not aligned with what I want to accomplish. So just take it out. And I think that that simplicity is really important. And I think it's important for anybody to know what their values are, because like you said, the behaviors are going to be consistent. They're going to be principled, right? You talk about stoicism in the book, and I am I am a, a devout stoic. You know, I'm, I've become very connected to the philosophy of, hey, this is what we're dealt in life, and we've got two choices. We could let that dictate how we're going to behave, or we could just look at it for what it is and move forward based upon what we value. And I think it's a really important thing for people to to understand what it is. It, not that everybody has to be a practicing stoic, but it's it's such a strong philosophy for athletics because there is 90% of what's out there we can't control. We only control certain things like our attitude or effort, our behavior, preparation. All the other stuff is outside of us. And so if you're going to react every time a referee makes a bad call or your coach does something you don't like or it starts raining outside. Like you're going to be in a whole hell of a lot of trouble.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, you're quite right. The stoicism is the closest thing of, to a philosophy that, that athletes could benefit by, and and I think, as I say in the book, combining it with some aspects of Buddhism and you know, meditation and compassion, then we have really we're really something somewhere quite special
1: yeah and and that resonated with me because I'm also a fan of the Buddha and I'm a fan of Buddhism and uh, I'm a fan of having all of my athletes try mindfulness meditation not it doesn't stick for everybody and and that's okay, but I think there's so many misconceptions about meditation and mindfulness about what it's supposed to be and you know that results oriented mentality comes out in like oh I'm not good at this that's not that's not the point. The point is, is to practice becoming aware of what you're thinking and feeling so that you can accept it for what it is and then make good logical choices based upon what's happening. And I preach that awareness. It's so huge, right? If you're not aware of, like you almost, what you were describing before about yourself, like you, you would have these emotional reactions, but you didn't almost sense like, it seemed like you almost didn't even know that they were happening. It was almost like these automatic sort of autopilot, like fits of rage or or anger when you didn't perform, but you didn't even realize that you were doing it. And I used to be that way too. And now when I get angry, I, I'm i compassionate with myself, but I also know that it's happening and I'm not happy about it. So what am I going to do? Am I going to stay angry? Or am I going to try to calm down, cool down, take a breath, have a sip of water, whatever it is, right? And that's that. That there's so much value in applying that in athletic competition.
0: Yeah, and you're quite right. I I guess I knew I was having these reactions, but they felt like you said automatic. It felt like because I cared about doing well and I cared about this sport. If I lost, I should feel terrible. That was just a logical step for me. There was no awareness of any anything beyond that. This this situation leads to this feeling. That's how it is until. Actually, Katie, again, was the first person who ever told me, you know, you don't have to feel terrible if you lose. And I remember her saying that still and just kind of looking at her like skeptically. Mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> and then it took a bit of time and she kind of persuaded me. And then through this values work and it just struck me that, I, that it, was, it was that simple. That's, I wasn't even seeing that, that, that it wasn't absolutely inevitable that you'll feel bad if you lose. So yeah, that that kind of awareness raising and just choice, I, it's, it's absolutely, I mean, it is central to, to what athletes need is being able to choose wisely to what's happening right now. Uh, And the best, the best tool we have for that, that's mindfulness meditation.
1: Absolutely. The number one, the number one tool, and then you start to couple it with other strategies and then you've really got something. And it's, that's probably what the most fulfilling part of my work is when I start to see athletes be able to like integrate strategies and do them in real time. And when I start to hear from them or I see them do it, where they tell me like, Oh, I did these things and it worked for me and I knew when to use it and it's helping me. It's like, like you said, like your game, your, your, your fencing like ability went through the roof when you started to apply those strategies. So as a segue, tell me about the 2016 Olympics and how it went for you, how you performed, like, just like, what was the, what was the outcome for you? Like, how?
0: yeah. So, I mean, this is where I didn't win a medal or anything. I, I, I competed in a way I performed in a way I was proud of, but this was just such a stark difference for me. It just sums up that change in mindset. So I was in my first match in the round of 32 against a Chinese guy. And I went, Eight or nine nil down, right from the start. He was super aggressive, and like that's his style. But he just started pummeling me, and I, I just distinctly remember there was not an an ounce of, there was not just not a gram of anxiety or fear in that situation, which is kind of crazy. You're in the Olympics. It was my, it was my debut in an individual, biggest stage in the world. TVs are on. You, all my friends and family are watching and I'm about to get whitewashed, right? There should be, (laughs) your your threat senses should be going wild. And it was just none of that. It was all just channeled into, okay, how do I figure this one out? Like super, like all on the challenge, like I need to sort this out. What am I going to do? What am I going to do in every moment? I need to do this. I need to try this. I need to try this. And none of that fear that kind of clouds and, and like burns you up and so i mean and and just a few years earlier i would have been a complete mess i would have been a nervous wreck at that point and would have bailed out i mean i i i I came right back into the match and i i got pretty close to him he ended up beating me anyway that was too big but it was just it was just like night and day that experience of competing there
1: yeah and and that that example that illustration like it just it highlights for me how important it is to have those values because in that moment you were valuing like my ability to take on this challenge and cope with adversity that was what was important to you how do i how do i handle myself with dignity and and continue to stay level-headed and take it one point at a time versus thinking like oh I'm a failure, like I'm getting embarrassed and what's everybody gonna think? For you, it was about, hey, how, how do I as a person live my values in this moment? And that's really cool. It's really cool because if you look on it, you know, listen, I was never an athlete at your level. And I think sometimes when, you know, you're in it, you expect the most out of yourself. You wanna win, obviously. We all wanna win when we compete. But as an outsider looking in, I go, you made it to the Olympics, who the hell goes to the Olympics? You know, the smallest percentage of the athletic population in the world go to the Olympics and you got the chance to compete, right? And I would imagine it's hard to keep that perspective when you're getting beat 9-0 in in your first match, individual match ever. But if you can remind yourself of that, right, it could actually be a benefit, right? Like, hey, I'm here. I got here for a reason. Like, it's going to be okay no matter what happens. Like, let me just go compete and have some fun doing it. And that's, That's a hard thing to teach anybody because whether you're in the Olympics or you're playing high school sports, it still feels like the most important thing in the world. And when you don't account for yourself the way you want to, you feel some embarrassment. And so, you know, it's, that's what I'm teaching as well is like, you can't control that there are cameras around. You can't control that it's the Olympics. You can't control that everybody thinks this is like the most important thing in the world. All you can control is how do I go about and attack the next point? But that takes practice. That does not happen naturally. Your brain is not wired biologically to do that first of all. Second of all, even if you understand that to be true intellectually, to do it in a high pressure situation is not something you can do unless you practice it. yeah that, and you were practicing it That right? was
0: exactly what I, the point I was gonna make is that it, it it's not it's not easy to just live by your values in a situation like that and kind of choose it's not even the case that you're really choosing. I want to be like this. This is how I want to be. I mean, this was, it was happening in seconds or a minute at max, right? And a lot was going on. So actually, you're basing it on all the training that you've done, the way that you've lived your values for the years before then, or at least a, at least a good chunk of time, months before. So you have to put the work in with, like anything with, with sport, you put the training in so that when you get to that situation, your body and your mind, you're just kind of aligned to this is how I do it and i had some i had some strategies that helped me along the way I had mantras that I used for every kind of reset they were all tied to my values to my kind of to some mindfulness like the my attitude um i had kind of yeah I had these strategies for focus and and i'd done i'd had a mindfulness practice so there's all this training that goes into it that but, but yeah i mean it, it was so much of it was linked to those values of how I wanted to be and I've done the visualization I visualize it if things are going wrong how do I deal with it So there's so much you can do. I try to say the same thing to young athletes that if you're not working with your mind, there's just so much that you can do before you even step onto a field of play. It's worth doing it.
1: Yeah. I love that because that's like at the, at the essence of what it is that we do in the work, right? Like what you were doing is stuff that I do, right? So you're an Olympian and you do it and it worked for you. Like I'm doing the stuff with, with people at a much lower level, but if now when they start to see the value of it, and not just in sport, right, in life, when things get stressful with your family, when things get stressful for school, how do I talk to myself? What do I want to happen? How do I reset myself? You know, I'm I'm going off the rails here. How do I get back on track? Those mantras, what am I saying to myself, right? Like you have that and you're able to use it in real time to get back to where you want to go. So like to hear you say that makes me feel good because- I think a lot of people don't realize that that's the type of thing that has to go into the practice. Um, So, talk to me about now. The Olympics are over. You're obviously you were very proud of the way you you know accounted for yourself and how you performed. Did you know right after? Did you know before the Olympics, or at what point did you know you were going to retire?
0: Yeah. So I went back to that project, that Olympic project, knowing this was going to be two years, qualify or not, win a medal or not. I was gonna I was gonna hang up my swords at the other end. So. I could use that time to to prepare what
1: what came next as well, which was was invaluable. Okay, so so tell me tell me about that. What kind of what kind of work were you doing? Were you working with Katie on that in terms of like starting to think about the transition out of sport, or were you doing that on your own?
0: Um, more on my own. I'd moved to Denmark, so I actually wasn't working with Katie in that in that period. Um, we had another team psychologist who who really helped us actually in that in that in a team sense another brilliant psychologist but uh i was doing most of it kind of on my own just using my network and 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 especially here in denmark kind of preparing things here um and i got i got a chance to work in a in a club a fencing club here as a kind of performance director and athletic director and then took on a role in the federation kind of as the national athletic director um so really kind of lucky positions to get and and it kind of flowed from there i was i was I was very lucky with the the timing of it, and just got. I was able to stay in in the sport as well, but I also got involved with this amazing charity that was born in in Tennessee, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, called the True Athlete Project. And that's just been that's been. I'm still there now. This is six years later, and that's been a just an incredible journey with that organization.
1: Yeah. So tell me tell me more about that because I, I, I've learned a little bit about that starting to read your book. But can you tell me more about what that is, what they do, and what the mission is?
0: Yeah. So it's back to what we first discussed was this sport as a powerful force for good, which we're just not, it's not living up to it. And we want to create a more compassionate culture of sport and a, and a more compassionate culture through sport. So yeah, it was it was born out of the, well, actually out of a the Muhammad Ali Center Forum for Athletes and Social Change, the founder, Sam. Parfit kind of envisaged this organization that, that showed that performance and well-being and making a social impact, they can all be part and parcel of just training as an athlete. And it's not the fact that you you do your training to get better at sport and then you might do a mental health workshop once a year. And maybe you'll go, like, if you get better, you might go back to a school and take some photos. Like that's your social impact bit. No, but actually you, all of these things can be part and parcel of the same Just developing us as humans, so I I got involved in 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 the mentoring program that we have, um, matching elite kind of Olympic level athletes with young aspiring kind of committed athletes from fifteen years up, and we we take them the mentor and the mentee on a, a pretty special journey, a year long journey, kind of teaching them both in some of these kind of techniques around performance psychology and mindfulness and values, and also. Community responsibility, things like that, um, and it's just been a, an absolute joy to kind of to to be involved with the with the charity and this program. So, and that's why I wrote the book. It was that's basically a distillation of our entire approach. Our, it was in a manifesto for this organization, and uh, there's been a pleasure as well.
1: Well, it's funny you say that because at one point when I was reading the book, I'm. A- I'm a incessant note taker. And I always, when I read, regardless of what I'm reading, even if it's for fun, I usually have a pen in my hand. Um, I don't know if it's some sort of, you know, um, disorder, but I, I just feel the need to interact with what I'm reading. And the word I wrote down at some point was manifesto, right? Like this is a, this is a, a characterization of the values of this organization coming through in what you're writing. And I think that that's really, cool to be able to do, to write a book, but to write a book about something you care so deeply about and to have it as a blueprint for something you want to go do, right? That you're doing that you want to make the world a better place. This is how we're going to do it. And I I, I dig that a lot. I think that's awesome. And, you know, when I was reading a book or started reading a book, I just couldn't help but think how much, you know, our values in this space are aligned. And I think to tie it back to your own career, right? Like I would imagine that knowing what you valued And having a game plan for exit out of sport and having something, having the opportunity to do things that you really care about and make an impact made that transition out of sport so much smoother than it would have been if you just were forced out or that you didn't have a plan, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I got lucky again that I could choose my exit. I didn't get injured and just slam out. So that was a a benefit. Um, But that, I mean what comes through in our approach is and we try and teach younger athletes is actually those the times where you are most fulfilled in your life is when you get to a chance to give back to others so even young athletes our kind of 15 year old mentees in this program they're they're encouraged to start some kind of community project in their year of mentoring because when you look back at your career all of me and my friends like it's not those top results yeah the, the results the medals they they're quite nice so you can remember them sometimes but the things that really were valuable in this long career of ours those are the relationships that we built those times we got to to give back to people the experiences we've had and and this kind of personal growth so really this is this is what sport this is on a practical level this is what sport can do for individuals those things that's what the value sport has. Nothing to do with the results. You can get all of those things however you perform. That's what we need to get back to. That's what the system needs to adopt now. We've gone far, way too far into the business model, the results, the win-at-all-costs model. We need to come back to this values-based approach. And that's the thing. That's the stuff that really that we really can gain. And, yeah, a bunch of my friends, they've won Olympic and World Championship titles, and many of them. And it's not that that, that makes you uh, kind of fulfilled in your career. It's all those other things.
1: Yeah, I, I you know, I've heard it said so many times, and I this is my own personal experience. When people look back on sports in the vast majority of cases, they think about the people that they were with, right? The friends that they made, the time that they spent, you know, on the trips or in the locker room or, you know, the things that you did outside of sport as people as friends as opposed to thinking about like that play or I won that medal right you're thinking about the memories the you know the relationships and everybody gets that in sport regardless to your point of the outcome and I think that that's really important that's w- what we should be promoting so how does the true athlete project like what sorts of things are you doing as a as a as a charity as a group to spread the word
0: yeah so I'm in I'm the director of this mentoring program but we have programs at all levels of sports. So we work with schools and community clubs and national federations. We work with kind of whole organizations as well, doing workshops for their coaches, for their athletes, even for their staff. Um, We do mindfulness classes for athletes, kind of online mindfulness classes um, and quite creative stuff as well. So we, yeah, we, we try and, go where there's need we've just started we've just made some online courses based on the content of the book so that we can get it a bit further out um our approach is really is really personalized it's very kind of live and and quite emotional based it's kind of personally based but obviously there's limitations to that so we've 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 made we put some stuff online so more people can just hear about it um i know a lot of of people aren't going to read the read a whole book but they might do a Kind of easy to engage with course.
1: Yeah, I, and so I usually do this kind of stuff after, like after the fact and post production. But like, since I have you, I want to make sure I have it right. Like, what's the website? Where is there a website that people could go through? What's the address? Yeah,
0: the trueathleteproject.org dot org is where to, where's to find all of that stuff. And yeah, I'd encourage people, even if you're not looking for a program, just go and check it out because the, the language we use, the mission that we're on, that often people come to, they come to the website and they just kind of feel this, this sense of relief that it can be done another way and that there are people out there who also believe that and are, are doing things another way.
1: That's really important to me because I, do, I know some people in my community where I live who we share, he this there's one person in particular that I, I know in my own town who was a professional coach for many years in the NFL. And he and I are very much aligned on philosophical approach to youth sports and what it's there for, just like you you and I are. We're very all similar. And we kind of talk about it in that vein of the way you just described it, which is like, it's almost like a secret society. Like we can talk to each other, but it's like, how do we like, we're in the vast minority where most people, you know, they don't, they don't know where to go for that message or they don't, they they think maybe they're wrong for feeling that way, right? Like maybe I'm the crazy one. Maybe I need to adopt this one at all costs, but it doesn't feel right. And I think that that's really, it's important to get the word out because I think there are probably more people, they just don't know what to do and they just get co-opted into the system because this is what people tell you you should do or, Everybody else is doing it, so I should do it too. When it just doesn't feel right, it feels yucky, right? Like that's the way I think of it. Is like it's kind of yucky. Like what's going on here? But we just do it because that's what we got, and we deal with it. And it's not cool. Like I don't think it's cool. Yeah. And, and I want people to check out the website because I think it's really important work that you're doing. Um, well, and I'll oh, go ahead. Go well, ahead. Yeah, yeah, I'm
0: sorry. One, just so I was just gonna say, one of the things we've noticed is that the. People who come to us who get our approach the quickest, they're the Olympic kind of elite level athletes who've had a long career. There are mentors coming to us. They've had their long career and they come and they just kind of feel like they get it immediately. They can see all the ways that would have helped them or that, that, that it aligns with the bits that work for them. So that's one of the, the things we got going for us is that we. Quickly, kind of onboard these super high-level athletes, and then there are the spokespeople for this for this mission. It's, it doesn't have to be tap the whole time. It's these athletes that everyone else can look up to. So yeah, but you're right. That kind of secret, kind of feeling about it. Yeah, it's still there.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I think you know you change that one step at a time, right? You you just the same way you might approach coming back from a big deficit. You just sort of do the next you know right thing. And you know those those little wins accumulate over time, and the message starts to get out. Um, and so, I guess the final question I'll ask you—I ask everybody the same question. It it, it's, it tends to work really well. So, the question I'll ask is: is like if you had to give one piece of advice to someone listening, a parent, a coach, an athlete—all three—like, what's that one piece of advice that you would share with somebody?
0: Yeah, and I think it will bring it back to that kind of central message that has come through this podcast and talking about my journey is it's called self-compassion and lots of people haven't even heard that term before but it's basically just treating yourself like you would your close teammates or a close friend or family member and we in the west are really good at loving our neighbors loving our family and friends and really bad at loving ourselves and it sounds really kind of hippie for an athlete it's the thing that unlocked my entire kind of performance. That is what people should be. We should be teaching our young athletes is forgive yourself when you make mistakes. You're only human. Forgive yourself and move on so that you can refocus on the next thing.
1: I couldn't have said it any better. That's a great way to to finish. Lawrence, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, I really loved the conversation. I'm looking forward to hearing it back soon and uh sharing it with the world and hopefully we can get some people to buy into the way of thinking that we have thanks a lot mike it's been a blast so what was your biggest takeaway from my conversation with lawrence halstead for me it's that young athletes are likely to experience their best performance when they're enjoying their sport in sports psychology we often talk about how our thoughts affect our feelings and our feelings impact our performance Having high expectations and being self-critical serve a purpose, but in order to truly thrive, athletes must learn self-compassion in order to maximize their potential. My suggestion to young athletes is to practice focusing on your strengths rather than harping on your weaknesses. One way to do this might be to keep a daily journal in which you celebrate some small wins and keep a gratitude list. Our brains are wired to focus on negativity and identify potential threats. You can proactively combat this by reminding yourself that the good you've produced far outweighs the bad. I want to thank Lawrence for his kind generosity and the wisdom he shared with the Freshman Foundation community. To learn more about how mental performance coaching can help your mind work for you rather than against you, visit michaelvhuber.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you back in two weeks, ready to get better.
0: Mike Huber is the founder and owner of Follow the Ball Coaching located in Fairhaven, New Jersey. He is a mental performance coach and business advisor dedicated to serving athletes just like you reach their full potential on and off the court. The Freshman Foundation is all about helping you get to the next level. For more information, follow along on Instagram at the Freshman Foundation. Please subscribe. Give us a like on iTunes, Spotify, leave a review, tell a friend. Most importantly, come back in two weeks ready to get better.